broadcasting live from This is Pop Culture Reference, your one-stop reference for all things pop culture. I'm one of your hosts, Garrett Strother. And I'm your other host, Seamus Connolly. And we are here to talk about a film that I am very pleased that has improved upon a revisit for me. Christopher Nolan's 2020 film, Tenet. I almost said Inception. Tenet. <laughs> oh, I can understand why, weirdly enough. But this is a first watch for me. This was, I just kind of skipped this one when it came out. But man, oh man, I'm, I'm glad I kind of got to see it in a little bit more of a vacuum, as it were. Like, nobody's talking about Tenet anymore. I can kind of, I... I was able to see it in a way that wasn't so affected by how much people had to say about it when it came out. So I'm, I'm excited. Well, the reason we are talking about it is because this week there is an IMAX 70mm re-release in select theaters across the country of Tenet. That is not coming anywhere near close enough to us for us to venture out and see it, but it was... A reason enough to cover it for the show, and I, I'm glad that I got to see it, I think, in, like, a better situation myself than I did the first time, like, checking it out from the library, you know, in 2021 or whenever that was. But I'm excited to get into it. First, we have some news, starting off with the fact that Sam Mendez is set to make four separate biopics following each of the four Beatles. Those will all be releasing... Around the same time, it sounds like. So, Seamus, what what is your initial response to this? I think it's kind of... I don't want to say hilarious, because that's not what it is. It's like it's it's definitely a, an interesting choice. It's like the Beatles-verse, truly, because there's no way that these movies don't, like, super rely on each other. It's really just releasing a super weird TV show at that point, you know? It's... Mm-hmm. A, th- a theatrical released television event. It also almost seems like it's designed for a streaming format too, but I I like how weird it is. I'm excited to get such a deep dive on each one of the four of them individually. I know in any given Beatles project, usually a f- one or a few of them overshadow the others in some some such way, but... I, um, I'm interested. I, I still famously know way less about the Beatles than I probably should, but I, I'm going to look forward to these. I don't know. What do you, what do you think about this? Ideally for me, this would be something where we are getting different chapters from each of their lives. If they're all standard biopic format, I think that's going to be inherently uninteresting And while I like the idea of doing these four separate, like, kind of sister films, I would be a lot more interested, again, if they were all different directors. Not that Sam Mendes isn't versatile, but I think it'd be a lot more interesting to approach them from a wholly different perspective. There's not been a lot released information-wise about these. We haven't seen a cast yet. I'm hoping for unknowns, but I know that you and I both did come prepared with lists of who we think maybe should be Beatles if it's not going to be unknowns. My biggest thing is I was Googling the phrase British actors under 30 or around, you know, young British actors. It was a strange, it was a strange couple hop arounds that I was Mm -hmm. looking through there, but I feel like 
for at least Ringo, my casting was Freddie Highmore, Charlie Bucket himself, the good doctor. That's interesting because I, I would I would have thought of him as more of a Paul, but Ringo, I kind of like that. I was, again, the strangest group of Google searches, but I found some pictures from something that he did where he had a lot more of a scruff on his face and and truly a little bit more of a, a Beatles mop going on. And I, I don't know. I think it's kind of perfect. I would like to, I was going <laughs> to mock up a picture of him and just draw a crude mustache on it. But you can just, just imagine that at least, if you will. Yeah, I think that that is interesting i'm kind of i'm kind of into that i actually i couldn't come up with a paul i was i was going through a lot of great british actors oh, and I baby just i've got nothing but one. pauls i've got <laughs> pauls on pauls on pauls what do you what here. do you got what do you got well i think first this is kind of a gimme thomas brody sangster who is the little boy from love actually he was on game of thrones he was in the maze runner he was in something that you and i covered recently that i don't remember right now He's got those big eyes. He is he played... the main guy from the Maze Runner? Uh, that's the only thing that you mentioned that I've seen. No, he's the he's the blonde boy. He's not. He's like this. Oh, he's, he's the, the guy little... that looks like insanely young. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yes. Okay, I did get that far into Game of Thrones at the very least. So uh, yeah, I mean, I like him. I've I've seen him in stuff since, and I I always think he's a pretty damn good actor. And he was in a movie that I never saw called Nowhere Boy which was about John Lennon growing up in Liverpool, and it, he was Aaron Taylor Johnson was John Lennon. This is probably 15 years ago. And Thomas Brody Sangster played Paul McCartney in that. I really thought that was good casting then. I still think it's good casting. So I think he would be a decent Paul. But I also think that we were just talking about this guy when we were watching Tenet, Jack Cutmore Smith would be a good Paul, who is the art... Do you, like the guy who's oh, showing them around the art yes. gallery. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I could definitely see that. Yeah. He was also in Oppenheimer. I know him primarily from uh, Cooper Barrett's Guide to Life hit hit television series. Cooper Barrett's Guide to Life, <laughs> sure, also sure. starring Justin Bartha from National Treasure. But also, I don't know if you know this. He is Freddie Crane on the new Frasier. Wow, that is interesting. I did not know that, Garrett. I I am I am more on board with that now. I was I was less aware of who he was, but I think that's actually very good. Do you have other do you have other Beatles that you've thought about? The easiest answer for John Lennon that I thought of at least looking through my lists of British actors, was a Nicholas Holt. I feel like his nose is pointy enough that if you put those circle glasses on him and let him grow his hair out a little bit, yeah. I think that big name like him, it's he's got the angular features on his chin and nose that I think that would make enough sense. I think he could do that for sure. I he wouldn't be a bad George either, I don't think. I had kind of kicked him around for George. Yeah, sure. I could I could see that. It's are we just musing about how the Beatles are interchangeable in our well, minds like we I have in the past? I don't think that that's entirely go see our TikTok about Beatle voice and Obi-Wan <laughs> Kenobi. Um but I think that my, my John was George McKay from 1917. The main guy the from main, that movie. I did I I didn't see the movie, but I saw the, him in the trailers a lot, and I, sure, yeah. 
I, I think at least he looks like he can play the part. And then finally, my la- my last Beatle pick, which is actually I think the one that I'm the most excited about, would be a guy who I'm pretty sure you don't know, Johnny Flynn for Ringo. He's a little bit older, but also Ringo's a little bit older, so I think that would work. He is a British actor that I have come to like a lot over the last few years. I saw him in multiple things, not realizing he was the same guy, and every time I saw him in something, I was like, that guy was really (laughs) good in this. Right on, right on. I think he's best known for the Netflix original series, or I don't think it's a Netflix original in the UK, but it is here, Lovesick, where he gets an STD and he has to go around and tell all of the women that he has an STD, which I hear is really good. I've never watched it, but I do really like him in Emma, like the Anya Taylor-Joy Emma. He plays Mr. Knightley, and he was also in a movie that I enjoyed, but he's the best part of called The Outfit with Mark Rylance. Well, I trust you on British actors more than pretty much anybody, so I'm, I'll take your word on that. And I'll, I'll be interested to see when we get more information of what these movies are actually going to be like or how the format of them are, is going to be. Maybe older castings are on the table if I would love they that. are going to be a little more interesting. With Maybe there'll be more individual timelines of specific Beatle eras for each person as they intersect. I don't know. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm, I'm making a little wish list before anything else is even on the table here. You know, I think that what you're getting to, which is the same thing we already discussed, is... I want these to be interesting. I don't want these to just be, it's, it's like Rocket Man, but I mean, I like Rocket yeah, Man, but it's, I mean, you know, it's Rocket a biopic, great, but, but it's, I don't want it to be walk hard, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> I think inherently it can't be, you know, in my mind, I'm like, it almost makes more sense for them to be individual, like, you know, do the John movies in the late Beatles era when they're breaking up, but the Paul era's like you know, in the, in the early, early days and stuff, you know, make it, mm. if anything, it would make absolutely no sense. Cause then they would all just be the same movie in the second act at some point, And then they would break off again. It would be, yeah. it'd be very strange. Yeah. I mean, who knows? I would, I would love to see something where they really time jump it. And even mm-hmm. to the point that maybe you're casting multiple versions of the Beatles would be really interesting. Oh damn that would be that would be truly great everybody gets their shot like the crown style you've got three sets of beetles wow that that's a great idea i really hope that's that we're calling our shot right now we've done it before on this podcast where we've really we've really you know pointed to the outfield out there so hopefully this is one of those times I hope so. I'm excited. We'll we'll talk more about this as things come up, and I'm already imagining the possibilities for us photoshopping all the names we just said onto different Beetle bodies for social <laughs> yes, media. Yes. Oh, yes. Our next piece of news here, I think this is good news. It certainly seems like good news, but what, let's not get too monkey's pod here. Uh, <laughs> Disney is going to hand all of their physical media production over to Sony going forward, which... Disney notoriously has some lackluster physical media, not only quality, but they often don't put things out in either premium formats or at all. They will buy Mm -hmm. things up, release them in theaters, release them on Hulu, 
and then they never get a physical release. This is going to be very interesting, especially because they have been kind of testing the waters for other physical media recently, including Disney Plus series, which I hope this doesn't change anything about Andor, which is allegedly supposed to come out this year on Blu-ray and 4K. But I hope this means that Sony will have access to the full breadth of their collection, be able to do more qualitative remasters and not just, okay, Sony, like here's the thing that's on Disney Plus, print it on a disc and spit it out. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, I think this is a fairly good sign at the moment. I, like you said, best case scenario, this opens the door to like the floodgates of really nice new releases that we can count on that are just disappeared by disney when they can get the chance i remember not even that long ago we were talking about like disney releasing empty steel books and and weird gimmicks like that for their stuff mm-hmm. that they already have streaming so this definitely puts me a little bit more at ease for stuff that i would you know honestly like to just have a, a copy of i mean andor specifically but also other things i guess maybe i have to put my money where my mouth is a little bit i've been talking the big talk about buying those First couple seasons of The Mandalorian. Oh, yeah, well. And I haven't. So, I don't know. My birthday's coming up, I guess. <laughs> oh, man. When they make a box set with the upcoming movie, that'll be the first phase of Mando content. You can buy that all up at once. I mean, if they would just sell me the first season of Mandalorian and also a bonus disc that just has the first uh, the- <laughs> episode of season two... That's all I really need to buy, but... What are you doing about Boba Fett, though, man? You can't not <sighs> take that into account, unfortunately. Because I... those are good episodes of The Mandalorian, too. In the middle of Boba Fett, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, those are certainly better than half of... Anyway, we're... This is... We're, <laughs> this is, we're digressing. Yeah, we're... <laughs> we can't talk about Star Wars all the time, except right now, because there's Star Wars <laughs> news. <laughs> oh, some of the best Star Wars news I've heard in a long, long time. The first two original star wars battlefront games are being remastered and launched on current and last gen consoles which is i think just a great move all around it is coming out on march 14th and it was just announced so they have been cooking this up apparently for a while now and i i'm thrilled that these are are getting their day in the sun finally especially battlefront one which is very undersung if you ask me I'm very excited to hop on with you and watch those wrist rockets. And Dude, 64-player multiplayer on modern servers is going to be an absolute, a literal game changer. I'm, I'm so excited. Because it, it was pointed out to me by friend of the podcast, Alex, that, you know, I have an Xbox that if I just got my hands on a copy of Original Battlefront 2, I could play local co-op and whatever. But the idea of having the true online floodgates unlock... <laughs> I think especially the timing of this is, I wonder if they almost moved this up or something. This coming right in the midst of the, of the Helldivers 2 hype. Oh yes. I think is kind of an interesting timing choice that maybe they were planning on releasing it closer to May 4th and they were like, well, we're ready to launch or well, we're let's crunch time so we can strike while the iron is hot here. I'm hoping it's a little more of the complete package that I'm expecting. It seems like they really went all out with the refurbishment of these these games. It's like stuff that I've never even gotten to actually experience mm-hmm. that they've like re-added into a base game that's going to be 
thirty bucks mm-hmm. for two classics. Like this is this is a big win all around. I'd Th- say this is a day one purchase, no question. Very pre-order. I'm pre-ordering yeah. it tomorrow. Actually, you get a little discount, and oh, I mean, the, is there? I know I'm gonna. I know I'm gonna buy it anyway. I'm just yeah. gonna. I'm just not gonna kid myself and and let it happen. Kit Fisto and Ventress are coming. Yeah, which... dude. Ah, oh, very excited. I'm honestly, I'm excited to finally beat the Battlefront Two campaign. I would, I got to the end of that campaign, the last mission where you're on Hoth, and I could never beat it. It was impossible. Well, but now I'm dedicated. Maybe with the power of friendship, we could do it together. And the power of a local split screen, Garrett. <laughs> oh, you bet, you bet your ass we're on that. But what do you say we talk time warp again? Let's get into the main segment. Seamus, we already did the main segment. Oh, this main segment was already recorded in the future, so this is all going to be reversed in the audio, I promise you. It's just going to fade out cleanly. For today's main segment, we're going to be talking about the 2020 Christopher Nolan sci-fi action thriller, Tenet. Seamus, this was your first time watching the movie. (laughs) Why you? I don't know why you're giggling. I'm just thinking about this movie, and I'm laughing and rubbing my brow like I'm a troubled man. I loved it. I don't know what... I heard very middling things about this movie when it came out, and I just straight up skipped it because it was COVID time, and I, you know, whatever. I just didn't have it in me, and then by the time it was really what people were talking about, they said it was just fine, but I kind of loved it. I don't... I. I We'll really maybe get into the details and I'll be able to figure out why in spoilers, but I I had a great time. I think Nolan still got it, even in, in those troubling COVID times. I, I had a blast. I saw this probably a little less than a year after it came out because I did not go to the theater to see it because it's insane that this came out in August 2020. <laughs> I remember Nolan made a big stink about it, too. Which, I mean, that actually did lower my opinion of Nolan quite a bit at the time. And I think contributed to the fact that when I saw this movie the first time, I didn't really like it that much. And I still have significant problems with it. I'll say that. As much of a great time as you and I had the other day sitting on my couch and watching it, it's a spectacle. It's really entertaining, but it has problems. One, it has the standard Nolan problem of... I can't hear any of the frickin' dialogue because oh, everything yeah. is mixed way too loud and it really makes me mad. <laughs> I don't understand why he does that. Every movie of his since The Dark Knight Rises has had that problem. Actually, no, Oppenheimer mostly doesn't have that problem. So good for him for kind of backtracking on that. But that movie is talking so much that... Mm-hmm. I mean, there's still lots of, like, swelling music over dialogue scenes. But I could, mo- you know, I saw that movie three times in the theater... And I I didn't have trouble making out the dialogue like I did in this and Interstellar and The Dark Knight Rises and Dunkirk. (laughs) Yeah, he uh, he does. He does do that. We were really turning up and down the volume between massive explosion noises and just whispered dialogue in a battlefield. It is it's all over the map there. But I was so taken by like every unique weird backwards forwards action sequence that i i was he like distracted me enough to not care as much about that as i usually do when i can notice that his mix his audio mix is way off 
I, I think it compounds a problem, though, that exists, which is I find this movie to be too impenetrable. I do not... It, there are two movies in the same genre as this movie, and it's this and Inception. Those those are the mm, only two yes. movies that are in this... I think you and the I The Inception it, genre. Yes. You and I defined it the other day as Michael Mann movies with super high concept <laughs> science fiction elements. Yes. yes, exactly. Which is cool, and I really dig the vibe of Tenet a lot. It's not that I don't appreciate that he is trying to slowly escalate us into the insanity of the full premise, which we will get into in spoilers. And pe- people knock this movie, I think, for not fully realizing its concepts in terms of, like, you could have done more with the central time manipulation conceit of the movie. I don't think that's true because I think it's such a difficult concept to grasp inherently that going any further with it would have made the movie even more difficult to parse. I do think part of the reason I liked it more on this watch was because I knew a lot more going into it. I knew a lot more about the concept and the events of the film which allowed me to follow it better. But the thing that makes Inception so special, and I think is still my favorite of his films, Oppenheimer is probably his best film, but Inception is the goat. I just, I do not think there's any competing with it. The great thing about Inception is you watch the first 25 minutes of Inception and you go from literally what on earth is going on (laughs) to this is the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. And also, there is a moment, you and I have discussed this, I think, on air before. There's a moment where you're watching Inception where you go, this is the best movie I've ever seen. You might not think that when you leave the theater. You might not think that six months after you've seen Inception. But I do think the first time you watch Inception, there is a moment where you go, this is the best movie I've ever seen. Yeah, oh yeah, absolutely. There's a reason that it is my first Blu-ray purchase in my entire life, and Mm -hmm. I have not forgotten it since. So, when you come to a movie that's so similar, not only kind of in concept, but in tone specifically as Tenet, I think it's really easy to hold up that mirror, no no pun or illusion or whatever that would be intended, (laughs) and say... I think that Tenet works less because you understand it less. It, to the point that there is a scene where Fleur de la Cleur tells us not <laughs> to think about it and just accept the movie for what it is. But I think there are moments, especially when you get into the third act, where not only am I having difficulty keeping track of who is where and when, but why they are where and when which is the bigger problem. I do not mm-hmm. think that, as again, simple and, well, linear is not the right word, as objective-driven as they try to keep the plot while still maintaining, honestly, some pretty surprisingly nuanced characters, I think, for a Nolan film of this type, it just doesn't all the way click. It's really technically formally impressive i think it's definitely the most effort that nolan has ever put into a film of this kind but that doesn't necessarily translate to it being successful yeah i there's a part of that that weird ambivalence to the idea of explaining your own film that i kind of love that's what is drawing me into the idea of this movie it's the genre it's the michael mann with high sci-fi concept stuff it is what i went into the experience expecting and when i got in there and they were like we 
we have three full hours, but we still don't have enough time to really get into how weird and crazy the details of this are, and you have to just trust us. I I let myself go in that moment that she literally said the words, don't think about it too hard. I was like, if that's literally what we're doing, then I'm just going to see what this has to offer me. And what it offered me was a lot of fun, a good amount of those little mini twist moments where you start to really understand why that weird insane thing in the first half of the movie happened the way it did i'm and kenneth Branagh is great i don't know he as a villain as this super villain guy that he is that it's like truly in the weird high concept of it all is so evil and messed up he's so amazing i'm glad that my assumption of him not being in this movie long was completely wrong when he showed up in the beginning he is really spectacular in this and i think again that's a perfect example of nolan has found a better way to do character driven storytelling in his sci-fi movies because inception is all about cobb and cobb's desires and cobb's subconscious and all of that but ultimately, I don't think that Inception is trying to to really accomplish anything crazy. It's general kind of heist archetypes placed into this insane world. Interstellar then comes along and tries to build too much of its science fiction around <laughs> characters that don't quite work. And I think that is a shortcoming of that film. Another of Nolan's that I haven't seen since it came out and I need to revisit and I'm much more motivated to revisit following this watch of Tenet. But he's kind of found the sweet spot here, I think, of taking characters that feel grounded and real and complex, but are still not two-dimensional as to upset the balance of the science fiction elements. Branna is incredible. You and I were talking yes. before oh, yes. the show. I watched all of the behind the scenes on the special feature Blu-ray disc in preparation for this episode. And Elizabeth Debicki is talking about how Branagh had to learn how to not only speak backwards, but speak backwards with a Russian accent, which I think is insane. He does such a good job. He's so menacing, but he does have, he's not just like the most evil guy in the world. He does have some dimension. But he's also the kind of guy that you totally believe would do all of the things that he eventually does by the end of this movie while being smart enough to pull off those things. He's he's a ruthless... We kept talking about how this is so Bond, and he is such a Bond villain in, in the way that he does everything. There's a theater to his dark, dark actions. It's, you know, the motivations of... Not somebody who wants, like, everything in the world, but they have everything in the world, and now they want the destruction on their hands. They want the control of as much as possible, and this is about as literal full control of the universe as you could do while still keeping it as quote-unquote grounded, you know? Yeah. It's not like, it's not Interstellar-esque sci-fi, I suppose. Bouncing off of Branagh, the other three leads of this movie are all spectacular in their own right. Elizabeth Debicki, I think, is doing the the thankless job of being a woman in a Christopher Nolan movie. Um, <laughs> she's, she's so good, though. She's so good, and 
it's, I think, despite, you know, my son, we kept <laughs> laughing every time she talked about her son, because the only, with the exception of Emily Blunt in Oppenheimer and Anne Hathaway in Dark Knight Rises, the only things that a woman can be are a mother, a wife, or a daughter in a Christopher Nolan movie. And I don't really, I don't think he has as much of a handicap with that as some people do, but there are problems with the way he views women, I think, in in storytelling. We can get into that in another episode, I think, maybe where it's more (laughs) relevant. Because I think mostly he sidesteps those problems in this, partially because DeBecky is doing such a good job. And she is elevating the material she's given, very similar to John David Washington, who I think is actually the least interesting character of the four leads, despite being literally only known as the protagonist, which drives me bonkers. I hate it so much. Oh, it's so of itself. It really is. It's so goofy that that's the route that he is truly the bride in all of this, you know? It's it's like a freshman film school idea of oh, we're gonna do a really high concept movie that's all built around this one character and it, we're gonna use storytelling as not only like the literal plot of you know like how storytelling works in a movie normally but also there's gonna be a meta narrative laid over the story to help you make sense of all the high concept convoluted science fiction elements that tell you that this guy is in fact the protagonist. <laughs> literally saying it multiple times throughout the film forwards and backwards forwards and backwards but <laughs> i like john david washington is a guy that i find incredibly watchable no matter what the caliber of the writing of the thing that he's in is cough cough the creator cough cough <laughs> you know he's great he's, he's very good yeah he's good he's charismatic he is doing a very good mixture of, like, a Bond archetype with a more, again, grounded being a relative term. Like, he does also feel like just, like, a special ops guy that's doing pull-ups in in a a wind turbine (laughs) waiting for his next mission. Dude, yeah, that's... Oh, man, maybe should should we... I mean, I... We should shout out our pats, at least, if we're we're rounding it out here. Robert Pattinson killing it very swiftly becoming one of my favorite actors of all time right now he is pretty much nothing but impressive and he gets to be british in this one i think he's really doing roger rees in this which i said to you and you didn't know what i I, meant i i well i only know him from uh robin hood (laughs) i don't he's the sheriff of nottingham in yes in that, that's literally I, the only thing I ever saw him in, I think. I, I believe yeah. you will find he's the Sheriff of Rottingham in Men and Tights. Thank you very much. I, is that what I said? I said the Sheriff of something in Rottingham. You said Nottingham. Nottingham is it in Robin Hood proper in Men and Tights. Damn it. Damn it. Oh, I'm a fool. Also, have you never seen... Well, one, this is a stupid thing to bring up because he's literally in a Christopher <laughs> Nolan movie, The Prestige. Um, But have you never seen Pink Panther? Like Steve Martin, Pink, Pink Panther? Panther? Like, Oh, yes, I have. I have. It's He's, been a while, if I'm being well, honest. Yeah. I, it's... But I think it is interesting that Roger Reese passed away maybe probably close to 10 years ago now. I think it's interesting that Robert Pattinson, I think, is very distinctly influenced by Roger Reese in this movie. The way he carries himself, the way he speaks. It's not his normal accent, the way he's wearing his hair. That Nolan did work with Reese. 
so I think that's kind of an interesting yeah like I wonder if Nolan was thinking that while they were making this movie well I would like maybe we'll maybe we'll pop some of his work on that I can see that maybe showcases that a little bit more because I thought Robert Pattinson was just swaggering in this movie I thought he was fantastic yeah he's great he is doing the thing that he's really good at which is being an action hero that is effortlessly charming and handsome and cool looking without he doesn't seem like he's trying to be that way at all he's very aloof feeling but then he's also doing the coolest thing you've ever seen anybody do in a movie oh yeah seriously <laughs> which is why his batman works because the combination of self-hatred and <laughs> theatricality he's really good at yeah he he can he can channel it and i really i enjoyed watching the behind the scenes on the costumes all of them were interesting but specifically when they were talking about robert pattinson's character and how he has all of these nice clothes that are just like tattered and that he clearly is just wearing them everywhere and he has a sense of style in that it's fun but he doesn't have a sense of style in that he's trying to look super kempt which i think is a really good interesting duality for this character well, and then in a spoilerier region of this talk, then we might talk about that. He has interesting things to say right at the end of the film. I would say that Maybe might tie does. more directly into that. Yes, I think I think we should we should talk about that. Um, in spoilers, which we're coming up on, I think. I, so ultimately, I know I've done a lot of tenant bashing up top, but I do I do enjoy this movie a lot more than I did the first time I saw it. It rocks. I think that I have to bring this up in free spoilers. The fact that we have recently learned from his interview on Colbert that <laughs> Nolan is a Fast and the Furious head yes. makes a lot of sense in the recontextualization of this movie, a context I didn't have when I saw it for the first time. Well, I'm glad I got that. I'm I, The timing of that worked out very well for me, I would say, having that in my mind a little bit in some very key Fast and the Furious style moments of this movie. Which, we w- let's go ahead and just call spoilers and jump right over. Let's do it, man. Um, I don't know, I don't even know how to broach this, if I'm being honest. This is like, <laughs> the, the Fast and the Furious wishes it could have a time dilation to make an endless highway car chase. Is that fair to say? <laughs> Nolan was like, oh, that's what they want to do. I'm just going to do that for real. Uh-huh. Amazing. Which I think is also the action sequence where you have things that are moving forward and backward in time simultaneously in motion against each other that is the easiest to follow. I think that's a credit because car chases that move forward the whole time are often not easy to follow sure yeah and the fact that you have john david washington in two different vehicles during the car chase trying to intercept moving backwards through time is a really really interesting mechanic that nolan is able to show you really well but even before backwards vehicles get involved just the whole like utilization of the fire truck and the the heist while the truck is yes is awesome boxing them in with every vehicle on the road and then opening it up to that like briefcase shell game style car chase is phenomenal i know it definitely helps a lot that backing 
up into that sequence again happens right after a little bit more of they kind of lay down the law a little bit more with the time door mm-hmm. thing <laughs> that's like right after Kenneth Branagh is shooting people and and setting things up trying to get his piece of time machine thing it feels great when it all comes together like that in a way that cuz that car chase just happened it's happening again we're getting the double perspectives of things finally it it clicks really well for me at least in that maybe it helps the rest of the movie that that is how they kind of start to roll back the rules I agree that I think it does benefit from having the turnstiles explained to you immediately preceding that action sequence and the fact that it is so fresh in your mind because I think the other sequence that is really effective with moving forwards and backwards in time is the art heist that happens towards the beginning of the film is then seen through the reverse perspective when John David Washington has to fight himself backwards to get into the turnstile and then fight Robert Pattinson forwards to get out of it. Incredible. Very cool stuff. That also, it's crazy how many of the insane stunts in this movie are both very impressive and also kind of in the background because of how insane the entire concept of the film is. Because something like, crashing a 747 into an airplane hangar (laughs) and mounting IMAX cameras every single place you can think of is, in any other movie, the craziest thing that happens in that movie. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But in this, it's not even, like, top five craziest things that happens in the movie because it's so effective at placing intensity on the science fiction elements, even if you don't always completely understand them. I also really enjoyed learning in the special features that John David Washington did four different takes of the fight scene where he's fighting himself because he had to do it once going forwards while he's in the suit as like earlier <laughs> sure yeah yeah once doing that but doing it in reverse doing all of the choreography in reverse then he had to shoot it once forward as him in the SWAT guy gear and then once going again choreography in reverse in the SWAT guy gear my god he should I hope he was paid four times for this movie because Jesus that is insane sounding the way that I mean that forwards backwards hallway airport fight is one of the highlights of the action I would say there are some maneuvers that they pull where he's like flipping up backwards from a laying down position to get into like an arm lock that I it truly like my my jaw was dropping with some of those high single beats of a fist fight that were just out of this world editing this movie I cannot even begin to imagine again editing a normal movie is hard enough (laughs) an action movie specifically but then having you know, it sounds great because, you know, you've got all these different takes to figure out, you know, you've got options. But then how do you figure out which one makes sense where? Again, it would be like editing four movies at the same time. That's impossible sounding to me. I think it all works together really well. The editing is one of the strong suits of this movie, I would say, generally. However, where this movie really falls down for me is in its third act. Specifically... I think the giant war when they're yeah, as you called storming it, the gates, deploying the boys, which I think <laughs> is great. 
way to put it. I do find that I don't really understand what's going on in that sequence. Even having, again, watching it the second time and being like, okay, Gareth, <laughs> I know that they blow up the building, then like invert the building, then blow it up again. But you need to actually pay attention to what's happening this time and what their objective is. I still could not tell you, dude. I do not know what's going on in I, that sequence. Yo, they, everything happens I get way it. too fast. Like you're saying, they he successfully distracts me with things like flipping up in a fist fight from the ground to put a guy in an arm lock, but he tries to distract me in a sequence like that, and I'm like, well, no one, no one is, none of this makes much sense, but at the very least, I feel like the choice to keep things more centered on that battle instead of flashing away to what I assumed was going to be the simultaneous... Uh, intro sequence at the opera house that I that they just absolutely sweep away. There is no resolution on any of that. But the battle, again, I liked some parts, but it is incredibly messy. I I found it harder to not think about it as they instructed me to. I agree. It's one of those where I don't really understand why they needed an inverted army there at all. And, and the inverted people aren't really shooting at the regular people, even though we know that they can see and interact with them. Why wouldn't that be a, some kind of priority? They're yeah, kind like of just like walking do- past each other. They are shooting a couple times, but it doesn't seem, I don't know. Again, the objectives are not clear. The inverted yeah. Yeah, army yeah. seems to mostly serve as a vehicle for Robert Pattinson to then re-invert. <laughs> re-invert. Yeah. And maybe, maybe he's supposed to do that. Maybe he's not. It's not clear. But clearly, by the by the time you get to the very end of the movie, he knows he's going to die. So he maybe was always supposed to do that, or maybe he didn't realize he was always supposed to do it until he'd already done it. Yeah. I, I mean, you're getting into weird, really weird, weird oh my God, yeah. stuff with that. But it's a pretty cool idea that is stepped on by... Its execution is too large scale. I think that's actually yeah, the problem. That it, it's unfortunate because I, you want it to be a larger scale and a smaller scale at the same time. And it is in that messy area where nudge to either direction could probably help it. But I again, I'm keeping my head in the Nolan sand where he told me to put it. <laughs> that's the thing. He did tell you to put it there. But then also, if you put it there too, if you don't think about it too much, then you're just going to be totally lost in the third act as opposed to kind of lost if you've been paying attention to the mechanics the whole time. I think that really the secret is, and I think they could still do this, they should have saved Time War for Tenet 2. Interesting. Because, oh, that is interesting. I wouldn't mind more of this. No, not at all. I, I think that that's like the exact same thing I was thinking as a kid watching Inception. And no, knowing now that it is way better as his own contained thing, but this feels like it could be expanded upon in almost seems like it was meant to be expanded upon when some of the things fall through the cracks that are that large. And you don't even need to necessarily follow the same characters. I think that just having a different story with the inverted technology mm. would be interesting enough. Although it would make sense to bring the protagonist back, except like now it's like mob boss protagonist. Sure, yeah, I guess so. Having a more intimate finale in this film, similar to how, you know, Kenneth Branagh goes out on the boat and then Mm. 
Elizabeth Debicki sees herself jumping off the yacht. I think that's a super interesting payoff that I enjoy. Yeah, yeah, that that was, it seemed like maybe a little more attention was paid to the smaller scale stuff of, like, the yacht, who's on shore when, timing it out with the other guy with the flare gun, Mm -hmm. who was pretty cool in this movie, who I wish I remembered his name. He's the guy from yesterday, I figured that out after we watched That's why he was so familiar, yeah, he was great in this, he he was was doing his thing, I wish he was a bigger part, but I mean, hey, you know, the second one, like you said. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm saying. I'm not usually a this-needs-a-sequel guy, but I think they could have saved some of their bigger ideas for a potential sequel. I don't even think Nolan is particularly interested in doing sequels to anything. That's why. Did I just assume this was going to happen and then not hear anybody say anything about it? Or am I just forgetting that maybe Elizabeth Debicki's son is our paths in the future, perhaps? What? Is that anything, or is, is that, that just something thing? I wanted? Well, okay, I'm glad I didn't just miss that entirely, but that's what I was thinking the big payoff of that was going to be the whole time, is that he was inverted from a future where it's like, you know, he's implying that it's like, oh, we're friends both in our prime. What if he is more of a mentor figure to him mm. and is sent back through the inverted time-turner room? I, I am curious about, because Robert Pattinson is not particularly old to die when he dies. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. Uh, so I was curious about, I think the conclusion the movie wants you to draw is that up to this point, Robert Pattinson's life has been more linear. And that the protagonist has gone back, like, the protagonist from the future has inverted all the way back to, bef- like, way before the beginning of this movie linearly and befriended younger robert pattinson that's kind of i think the Uh, desired uh. conclusion but i have no idea to be entirely honest with you another thing that i think this movie could explain a little better because again the crux of like we're bros and you didn't even know that we were bros (laughs) is so good yeah right because they have that chemistry together it feels like they're bros and i want to see that more and that brings me to my like, how is he also at the opera house at the beginning? Because they what... reveal that he yeah. is the red string guy. But does that mean that there, you can invert twice in the same timeline before going back forward somehow? Because they, I, I it, it makes it feel weirder to me. This is why I think that he has lived a more linear life up until this point. Because to my brain... He is the same Robert Pattinson that shows up five scenes later in that. Like, he hasn't inverted since then, I don't think. Oh, like, he inverted to save him, reverted, and then, quote-unquote, met him when they meet in the movie. That's what I think. Oh, interesting, interesting. Okay, so that that actually does clear up a little bit more of my confusion of that, because I thought that was more of, like end of the movie Pattinson going back to then maybe doing that. Cause he's like, Oh, he's trying to figure out like, okay, Oh, that was me. I got, I got to go deal with that now, even though it, everything feels so wrapped up. I have to do it. Cause it happened kind of thing. No end of the movie. Pattinson is just, I got to go get shot. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Adios amigo. He says to his best friend slash maybe Ugh. lover. We get up to some stuff. Ah, uh, well, again, I wouldn't mind another one, but I don't think people liked this enough when it came out no. for it to get that kind of treatment. It's it's sad because, again, I had such a blast with the action, the 
the concepts themselves. I want to know more about this device thing that evil Kenneth Branagh is building and then maybe blowing up with a, just like a bomb or whatever. I, again, I don't understand how the algorithm works. I don't understand how it's tied to his life. I know that that's the MacGuffin that they're working to to resolve in the yeah, combat Yeah, that zone. just seems like but a thing it's... that was they just tacked on there. It's like, but yeah. if Kenneth, Kenneth Branagh just gets shot in the face... Uh, like you know like we want to do it's like no 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 we got to keep him alive till the end of the movie trust us it has to be that way so yeah i think again this movie falls down to the third act for me if the third act were clearer i would have a lot less hate for tenet all the stuff that i said at the beginning because sure sure as you said much like inception it's very bond and i like (laughs) this version of nolan playing in like a spy even more because it's a way more explicitly an espionage film than something like inception inception is a bond movie in vibe this is a bond movie in genre in true genre yeah oh yeah it's like the the intro scene of inception is 100 percent bond but tenet is 100 percent the first scene of inception you know they're jumping they're bungeeing two windows oh, to so like cool. do a secret showdown with an arms dealer who's not the arms dealer that they think that it is in the room. It's 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 fantastic. All the Mumbai stuff, I think, is really cool. Hell yeah. That's something that this movie has a really is really strong with is its locations. Its locations are very cool, don't feel derivative, but are also just extremely well shot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm again from even from the intro, from that IMAX sneak peek in the in the Opera House showdown where it's like a big terrorist attack, gonna kill all the people with bombs inside and stuff. The action, just dead sprinting in beautiful locations, has never looked as good. well. Maybe when it's like Mission Impossible sprinting, but like besides <laughs> that, it looks real, real nice. I love it. I don't even think we really talked about how cool the heist element is enough the heist at the midpoint which turns into the airplane hangar and reverse fighting yourself sequence just the heist itself is cool enough that nolan could have just done a more straight spy movie and it would have still been one of the better spy movies Mm -hmm. in the last 20 years but he puts really his own identity and his own spin into it i'm impressed by the audacity of tenet as an endeavor I wish it played a little bit better. I didn't mean to rhyme it, but here we are. <laughs> but you know what? You were a poet and you didn't even know it. I'm so sorry. I'm a poet, but I didn't <laughs> even know that I was one. That I was one of those. <laughs> oh, God. I mean, I again, I I am allowing Chris Nolan to, to, put, to, to draw the veil over my eyes for this one. It's like, it's, it's a little bit of the same feeling I had when I saw... Asteroid City, Wes Anderson's Asteroid mm-hmm. City, where I was like, I can I can attempt to fight against the current, or I can accept <laughs> that this is just a movie that this person wanted to make and had some really fun ideas about. And I tur- it turns out I really enjoyed both of these experiences in doing that. I it's just allowing them to have a little fun without really and again the time that i took to watch this the years in between this coming out and the hype dying down and me finally getting to see it 
I enjoyed the hell out of it, and I was thinking about Inception the whole time, and I think yeah. that's fine. <laughs> Oppenheimer now seems like the movie that Nolan's entire career has been building to, but in many ways, like how we've been talking about the different similarities to his previous work throughout this segment, it's the movie that Nolan has been building to his entire career from the time that Inception came out, and probably in more educated circles from the time Memento came out, but as far as sure. I'm aware from the time Inception came out, People have been talking about when is Chris Nolan going to do a time travel movie, and this is Chris Nolan's time travel movie. Do you like Memento, by the way? I haven't seen it since I was in high school, so I can't really give a fair answer, but yes. is You know is what? Neither answer. have I. Maybe we double feature Tenet and Memento. And we're just and gonna, then we do we're a Memento backwards cool film down. Strips, and we're going to cut out <laughs> the scenes and rearrange them so that we can yes, make sense yes. of everything. Exactly. They're technically they're current quills. They happen at the same time. The Carrie Carrie Ann Moss is walking through the background of, <laughs> yeah, of yeah. the airport when Robert Pattinson is explaining the heist. To exactly. The you know, you know, dude gets his head blown off right at the beginning. That gun, that's inverted. See, that's why it looked that's like that. That's why it looks like that. <laughs> oh, what? There you, oh, yeah. so dumb. But I, you know what? That's a double feature. I'm gonna make us do sometime. Okay, I think that we're done with Tenet. I don't. Th- I mean, we could do like six hours on Tenet, realistically. We really could. If we were really getting into more of the insanity, we could do hours and hours and hours of this. But I think I think we've gotten our general points across about this wacky, crazy movie. This is, you know, we've talked a lot of times about what's the marathon where we watch it 12 times in a row. Oh, dude. Maybe this is this is maybe this is a strong candidate for. (laughs) I mean, talk about breaking your brain. Talk about the physics of the world just not making sense anymore. Do you think we would (laughs) being able to actually unlock your third eye? Maybe and understand what's going on. We would fill up that whiteboard you have, and I think we would be able to figure it out by the end. So that's a thought. Anyway, that is a thought. (laughs) Good tenant talk. Time to talk more tenant which is a kind of fitting transition given the subject matter. Indeed, let's do it. For today's pop culture reference, we're going to be talking about Christopher Nolan and his relationship with IMAX. Director Christopher Nolan has a long-standing relationship with the IMAX format and was the first director to use IMAX cameras to shoot a major motion picture with 2008's The Dark Knight which featured 28 minutes of IMAX footage. Nolan continued to use IMAX on The Dark Knight Rises, Interstellar, Dunkirk, today's main segment, Tenet, and most recently, Oppenheimer. In fact, our pop culture reference segment for the Oppenheimer episode dives more into the technical specifications of shooting and exhibiting IMAX film. We recommend you listen to that segment as a companion to this one. With each foray into using IMAX, Nolan and his team pushed the limits of the format and often were forced to create new tools to realize their intended vision. On The Dark Knight Rises, director of photography Wally Pfister wanted to shoot the entire film on IMAX cameras, but was unable to due to noise interference during dialogue scenes. Still, the movie features over an hour of IMAX footage, which was by far the most ever included in a feature film at the time. Interstellar marked Nolan's transition to working with a new cinematographer, Hoyta van Hoytema, who is well known for his technical ingenuity and ability to invent new camera techniques. For Interstellar, 
Hoitama altered IMAX cameras so that they could be used handheld while shooting interiors. Older IMAX documentaries were also massively influential on the look of the film, with Nolan and Hoitama strapping the camera to fixed positions on the exteriors of the spacecraft to mimic the look of real-life space missions. Similar techniques were used to attach IMAX cameras to the outside of fighter planes for the duo's next collaboration, Dunkirk. The film also saw a greater expansion of Hoitama's use of handheld IMAX footage. Roughly 75% of Dunkirk is shot on IMAX, the most of Nolan's career. With Tenet, the technology of IMAX was pushed even further, with new mounts being created to better situate the large format cameras inside action sequences like car chases and airplane crashes. Hoitama also worked alongside IMAX techs to invert the way IMAX cameras run film, allowing the Tenet photography team to shoot backwards. According to members of the production, Tenet shot more IMAX footage on more IMAX cameras than any other film in history. As discussed previously on Pop Culture Reference, Oppenheimer was the first film to shoot on IMAX black and white film, which was developed specifically for the movie by Kodak and Photochem. On Oppenheimer, Panavision lens tech Dan Sasaki also developed and tweaked lenses specifically to realize the filmmaker's vision on IMAX cameras including a special kind of probe lens used to create in-camera visual effects representing quantum phenomena. Nolan was the filmmaker who ushered IMAX into the realm of feature filmmaking and has been the greatest proponent for its use as an immersive tool that gives audiences a visceral experience that cannot be replicated in another format. Nolan, I think, is a true visionary when it comes to his idea of the scale of filmmaking and he's really doing it like no other filmmaker is right now, or at the very least, he's doing it like no other filmmaker that wasn't influenced by Christopher Nolan. <laughs> yes, I think. that is exactly right. I because think. you look I mean... at people like Denis Villeneuve is the obvious example and their buddies and Dune 2 is next week. Booyah. <laughs> oh man. He, in addition to being stylistically similar to Nolan, I think as he approaches larger scale films, blockbusters has taken some pages from nolan's book in terms of you know shooting on large format and, and for imax specifically but the idea that nolan had the thought to shoot on imax for the dark knight prologue to really make it a statement piece and against warner brothers wishes i might add <laughs> when that became the premier premium format of the 21st century is insane. Yeah, I know there was some messier stuff about this when he was trying to promote the importance of IMAX during the Tenet release mm -hmm. in the middle of a global pandemic. But I mean, in any other time and place, I am in complete agreement with him and I, I really do appreciate that he is just pushing the limits at every turn to make the movies like a real experience with the two with you know physical tools he's not just relying any old thing on cg or computer effects or anything like that he is he's making it happen in his own hands and often destroying the cameras that he's using to to make those amazing amazing films well, it's so funny to think that when they were shooting The Dark Knight and they ran over one with, <laughs> with the Batmobile, there were only, like, four in existence or something. Oh, dude. And just sinking sinking one to the bottom of the ocean during the Dunkirk filming <laughs> is pretty funny to think about. <laughs> that they had to, like, go dive down and excavate the film from this Which, camera. It worked. 
They that, did. That footage is in the movie. <laughs> oh, it's all the better for it, I would say. I agree. I mean, that's a, he would say that's the cost of doing it real. That and you can feel the the yeah oh yeah tangibility of practical effects. And this isn't about practical effects, but the same mindset that he has that drives him to shoot so much in camera, so much practically, is the same mindset that gives him the presence of mind to shoot in IMAX the way that he does. I agree about the way that Tenet was released was a snafu on his part and he was not seeing the bigger picture mm-hmm. ironically because he's used to seeing the bigger picture <laughs> on IMAX cameras but I think if he had waited a year and a half that could have been Top Gun Maverick that could have been the movie Absolutely. back the smash hit back because you remember the summer because people didn't understand Inception when it came out either but the summer Inception came out everyone was talking about it Did oh you yeah see Inception does the top fall what you know what's going on <laughs> with that insane movie from this guy who i guess did some batman movies but now he's doing this man yeah it could have been it could have been huge we could have gotten the sequels we could have gotten the franchise that this idea deserves but uh I, money money talks i guess he he they need they couldn't hold on to it Nolan will never work again and probably never win Best Picture. And, and you oh, know, absolutely he, he'll never not. have the highest grossing R-rated movie of all time or <laughs> anything like that, that. No, no, no. No, no. That, we'll forget that guy's name in a week's time. I agree. But why don't we go ahead and save the rec center? Let's do it. We're actually going to save it and then we're going to blow it up again. <laughs> save it again. <laughs> save Back it Now it's time to save the rec center, where we bring you our weekly recommendations. Garrett, what do you got for me this week? Well, Seamus, I've probably rec centered it before, but even if I haven't, I already have, haven't I? Oh, if it happens, it happened. But this is not going to be a surprise to you even a little bit. I am here to rec center in honor of today's main segment, Tenet. Christopher Nolan's masterpiece, Inception. I revisited it immediately after we watched Tenet the other day, (laughs) and uh, it is better than it was when it came out. I think it is just so immersive, impressive, bombastic. It's a turning point in every single person in its career, I think, including Nolan's. Hans Zimmer, that's the downfall of Hans Zimmer, really. That's when he (laughs) comes the blah guy. But Leo... Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Elliot Page, Ken Watanabe, Tom Hardy, Chris Nolan, Killian Murphy. Like, everybody, I think, in that movie had a different career trajectory afterward because it's such a monumental piece of filmmaking. It is everything that high-concept sci-fi wishes it was while also being a breezy, good, heisty time. If you've not seen it, why are you listening to this podcast? If you have seen it, (laughs) You owe it to yourself to watch it again. Inception rocks. It rocks, dude. I It's one of my favorite movies. It, that's weird to say considering I haven't seen it in so long. But like I mentioned before, it's the first Blu-ray I ever bought. We, Me and you have twin inverted Blu-rays of Inception sitting on our shelves. Even having seen like Batman Begins was before Inception? Or was ba- The Dark Knight also before Batman Inception? Batman Begins and The Dark Knight were both before Inception. Okay. <clears throat> Having seen both of those 
Batman movies before this, this to me is still like the first time I ever saw Killian Murphy or, or you know any of any of the mainstay Nolan cast that then blew up. I think it's phenomenal. It's just the right amount of high concept. I from time to time still download that dumb Inception Dream app that you listen to when you're trying to sleep and it's supposed to give you like Inception Dreams. You Love use it. the top QR code that's on the front of yeah, your oh, Inception yeah. Blu-ray you, to download. Yes. Obviously, Garrett, I'm not a fool. <laughs> of course I use the QR code on the front of my Blu-ray. Oh, but yes, I I wholeheartedly second Inception. I really don't know if there is a more instantly iconic or influential action set piece from this century as the hallway fight. The hallways, yeah. It's just, yes. oh, it's incredible. Jessica and Levitt, why have you forsaken us? Come back, baby girl. <laughs> That's please. what I'm saying, dude. Oh, my God. We saw we saw Robin's last hurrah, and then that was, like, the last big thing I ever remember seeing him in. I'm very, I miss him. I miss him, too. But what do you have to save the rec center this week? This past weekend, I went up north in Wisconsin for the first time ever. Absolute middle of nowhere. Middle of the woods. It was beautiful, incredibly peaceful. And with my family, I watched The Great Outdoors starring Dan Aykroyd and John Candy. And having absolute zero awareness of what this movie was before watching it, I had an absolute blast. It really feels like a classic SNL era movie of pure goofy bs john candy accidentally holds on to the the handle of a water skiing boat and is like flung around a lake they fight a bear at one point it's truly just non-stop goofiness and dan Aykroyd, you bet your ass he talks really fast in this movie because that's what he's great at in the 80s he's a real scumbag but man it's it's just like dumb classic comedy and it was maybe it was the perfect setting to be in the middle of the Wisconsin woods being from Chicago just like John Candy and his character in this movie but man I had a very very fun time with the great outdoors you know I've never seen it I have always kind of thought of John Hughes movies in two categories that being John Hughes classics and the other ones. <laughs> and the great outdoors. Because, <laughs> dude, like, let me tell you. Like Uncle Buck. Basically, John Candy movies that John Hughes was involved with. Sure. John Hughes movies, even if he wrote or directed or both, all have a similar touch and tone. And sometimes that really works. And sometimes it's Uncle Buck. So i I think i've always avoided this one the most i know about it is well what you just told me and the fact that their characters among other john hughes characters cameo over the closing credits of she's having a baby so i i straight up didn't know that so that's amazing we should watch she's having a baby sometime i've never seen it let's do it Um, yeah there's a very funny like like it's like a quarter of a john hughes plot is like technically the b plot of this movie where the son is like he meets a local girl in this like cabin town who's like they want to have a fling for the weekend they know each other but it just absolutely does not they do not follow through falls instantly flat it's it's kind of fascinating to see well that's the thing sometimes like hughes all the elements are always there but sometimes it just doesn't work i think (laughs) this is this is you 
you're not coming here for that. You're here for Dan Aykroyd and John Candy just, like, hating each other's guts in this movie. It's very funny. <laughs> well, I'll have to check it out. Um, I don't know if I don't know if I'm racing to this rec center. That's okay. I am That's interested. okay. I'll say that. You've already watched The Great Outdoors in the future, so you'll get there eventually. Yes, exactly. What is it like to watch? No, we can't get into it. We can't get no, more no. than Tenet. We can't. But yes, I've already watched The Great Outdoors, so <laughs> future me will come back and report back on last week's podcast about The Great Outdoors. Perfect. I'll listen forward. But I think that wraps us up for this week's episode of Pop Culture Reference. If you want to reach us on social media, on Twitter, TikTok, Instagram, you can find us at PCR underscore podcast. Email us at popculturereferencepod at gmail.com. Like us on Facebook. Subscribe to us on YouTube. Any kind of engagement always helps us out. Next week, Seamus. It, it is time. The hype, I do not think, truly could be more real for Dune Part 2. It's supposed to be a masterpiece. I'm trying to temper my Ooh, expectations, man. but it's really difficult not to. The vaguely Middle Eastern desert chant music is already playing in my head. I am so thrilled. I didn't get to see Dune 1 in the theater, let alone IMAX, so I'm ready to be lifted out of my seat uh, and do a bunch of spice to make my eyes blue before we get out of there. I'm, I'm so excited. I am too. In case the cast of the first Dune couldn't get any better, they have added so many actors who I'm really excited to see oh, show up in this and and really, you know, live up to, I think, what the promise of the first film is. So... Hopefully we will be seeing you blue-eyed and bushy-tailed next week <laughs> for Dune Part 2. Adios, amigos. Suagi, masuagi, na.